Hello and welcome to Glossonomia, conversations on the sounds of speech. I'm Eric Armstrong. I'm joined today by Phil Thompson. Hey, Phil. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am okay. Okay. Uh, if you didn't guess, we're doing a show today about a diphthong sound, the sound we hear in the lexical set, goat. So uh, the O sound will be pretty prominent. And this is kind of a parallel show to our last show, uh, episode 27, I think, was our I last this, one. That's right. This is 28. So 28. And... Um, Episode 27 was about a, a diphthong sound, face, and this one sort of is a, is equal and opposite. It's the, the, the partner to face. Um, and so uh, both sounds are what we call diphthongs, at least in certain accents they are diphthongs. Yeah. And so let, let's start with a little recap of what we mean by a diphthong. Um, yeah. So we have a diphthong, two Sounds Is that not right, Phil? Exactly. We were exhaustive and exhausting, perhaps, in our description of it last time. But uh, essentially, two sounds married together to behave perceptually as a single sound, mm. as, as one syllable. And that's distinct from a sequence of two vowels that uh, add up to two syllables. So if I were to put O and Oh, for example, oh, that's not a diphthong. That's a sequence of vowels. But oh blends together into a single unit. And because the two sounds blend together, we could also describe how they phonetically behave. Mm. Uh, I suppose that's the way to say it, how gesturally they behave. That we start in a single position. That's the nucleus of the diphthong the main part of it, and then we sort of flow out of it into a tail, necessarily less, uh, less prominent, less tense maybe, uh, and probably with less duration. Mm. So uh, in a way, I, I might think of it being like uh, the difference between a static position and a gesture that moves through time and space. Exactly. And last time you used the term vector, which I thought mm. was nice, that uh, we're describing the path, uh, the through time, the path of change of mouth shape. Right. So uh, we might think of it as an arrow on a chart rather yeah. than just a dot. Yeah. And frequently we might see a vowel chart where we could represent the starting place and the ending place of the diphthong path. And some people make the, the, those arrows more like a, a, a bit of a triangle, that it starts fatter yeah. and it ends narrower because we're, we're reducing, in a way, as we head towards that uh, second element. So uh, if we're mapping it out with phonetic symbols, we might use a phonetic symbol to represent the initiation point and the target for where the tail is headed. Yeah, I saw actually on a Wikipedia entry I was looking at today that first element described as the offset of the diphthong, and I had never heard that before. Are you familiar with that at all? I, I That's new to me. Well, I it could be wrong. It is Wikipedia, uh, but right. we could be ignorant. That's happened before as well. Hmm. So I think that's enough, actually, description of what diphthongs are. And as we go forward to talk about this particular 
phoneme, this particular entity of goat, uh, we may start to describe various acrobatics of shifting from one to the next. But so far, we've got uh, a diphthong, which is a falling diphthong. It starts with a big nucleus and it falls off to a small tail. Uh, and it is not classed as one of our centering diphthongs, even if in its realization it's moving towards the center line of the vowel chart, it's not moving towards the center of the vowel chart, it's not moving towards schwa. Yes, it's a closing shape, really, yeah. that uh, there is a gesture of closure that's happening. Um, so that that's one possibility for this lexical set, but of course the other possibility is a monophthong, a single sound, what I tend to call pure O, um, and a pure O means that we're, we're, we're talking about a static gesture, that we're shaping somehow the oral tract into a, a single point of articulation, uh, at least for the brief moment of that sound. So uh, uh, when we think about the O sound, we're talking about lip rounding and a whole bunch of things. We'll talk about the mechanics of it in a yeah. moment. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the lexical set, the group of words, and perhaps spellings that we would associate with this. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about lexical sets, we, we kind of have to dip into the history of English and from whence uh, these <laughs> things have come. You did not just say whence. You didn't reduce cool your glide cluster. Uh, yeah, let me just quote J.C. Wells. I've sort of gotten into the habit of this when talking about the lexical set because I find that he has summarized things beautifully, which is uh, why perhaps this has such uh, durable impact, this book. The book May John being... bless this reading of his holy <laughs> exactly, words. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, goat. The standard lexical set goat is defined as comprising those words whose citation form has the stressed vowel O in RP and O in general American. Now, he did put uh, slashes around that, indicating that those were uh, phonemic representations, or broader representations. Uh, we can get into detail later about the specific realizations of U.S. and U.K. goats. Yes. Uh, the two accents agree substantially in the lexical incidence of this vowel, by which he means which words fall into the category of this lexical set. Uh, so the two accents agree. Phonetically, general American O is a back, half-close, rounded monophthong. I'm making a face now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, or narrow, closing diphthong, O, whereas RP, O, is now typically a diphthong with a mid-central unrounded starting point, similar to the quality of RP, uh, moving towards a somewhat closer and backer, lightly rounded second element, uh. I tried to lightly round that. Distributionally, this vowel occurs in both checked and free syllables, so you can end a word with o, uh, or it can occur, obviously, with a consonant after it. Uh, and that's the end of that. So uh, we perhaps could move into the history. That's what Wells does. Uh, the history of the sound in terms of the shift 
that happened in English, the great vowel shift, might be a good place to start. Sure. I'd love to start so, one step further back uh, and use the word stone for an example, uh, because mm -hmm. spelling-wise, you can see that it was originally written with an A, and I believe started as an A, stun. And so the early shift that happened in that set of words was from stan to stone. Uh, how, sorry, how can we see that stone used to be spelled with an A? Uh, in, I think, in Chaucer. Ah, okay. Uh, I, I'm pulling that one out of my memory hole, so I can't give you a citation. <laughs> that memory you keep in the back of your pants. Exactly. Uh, your results may differ. Uh, so we referred last time to the wonderful Great Vowel Shift chart on the Wikipedia page, uh, which I'm currently trying to find. That'll give our audience a chance, if they're sitting in front of their computer, to do the same trick, uh, which is to look for Great Vowel Shift. There we are. So the two classes of words... Uh, the two lexical sets, I guess you could say, in Middle English uh, were, we'll use the word stone because it's what's listed here, stone and moon, that's M-O-O-N, moon, and S-T-O-N-E, stone. And the only difference between those two is, is uh, openness. And openness, so... S-T-O-N-E, stone, more open, exactly. whereas the moon, what we say as moon now, was pure O, more. Exactly, and I suppose you could say that the word uh, room falls into that category as well. Uh, there's the, the word ultimately that's used for the goose lexical set exactly. would have been so goose. It was living in a place that we would recognize as O, as long O. Uh, in... Julius Caesar, there's a little joke on the rhyming of R-O-O-M and R-O-M-E. It's Rome indeed and Rome enough. It's Rome indeed and room enough. Uh, that shifted by 1500, those moon and room words, those double O words, had moved into the goose category and stayed there. So when Shakespeare was making that joke, yeah. really, it had already happened. Exactly. Uh, and he does this quite a bit, in fact, that he'll... For example, his use of, of thou and you, or thy and your, uh, that was old-fashioned by the time he was writing. He did seem to be making those distinctions in order to say something, but the change was underway. And in this case, he's making puns based on an old-fashioned pronunciation, which might have been current, he might have used it, it might have been common in London, but the change was underway. And mm -hmm. uh, as listed here on this Wikipedia page, at least, by 1500, room, R-O-O-M, and moon, M-O-O-N, were pronounced with oo. The other category, and I've saved another category uh, to add to this, the stone category. Uh, well, 
I'll move on. There's also the no category. Uh, mm. So that's K-N-O-W. So now I'm going to move to the distinction between stone and no. The real difference there is in the no category, as indicated by the W, there's a closing into a roundness there. So we start in an open position and we close to a more rounded position. By 1500, the no had changed from au to o. So a little bit more closed. Exactly, in the first element, but the second element is as closed as it's going to get. Uh, Then uh, we see that by 1550, the stone category had closed as well to stone. So we have a distinction between stone and stone, uh, sorry, stone and no, which is just a matter of pure vowel or diphthong. And then by 1700, they had completely merged to a pure vowel, o, a long o. Now, what's interesting, and I think I do want to follow this line upwards, by 1800, we had uh, returned to a diphthong, o. By 1900, uh, that second element had relaxed to an o, o. And then past that, which I guess, by implication... Coming into the 20th century. Exactly. Uh, we can talk later about when that really happened. We have a move towards a more fronted, central uh, beginning for that diphthong, which is O. Oh. Oh, so, right. like I did with face, I think I'll try and go through the stone uh, category. So, 1400, stone. 1550, stone. 1700, stone. 1800, stone. 1900, stone. I made that a bit of a two-syllable because I'm working at it. Stone. (laughs) By the 20th century, stone. Now, that's only taking one line. Uh, There's still a lot of variety that we'll get into. In the no category, in 1400 we had no. In 1500 we had no. In 1700, we had no, and then the two are blended together. So that that distinction was lost to us a long time ago, and so we can imagine that that uh, essentially we can ignore it. <laughs> we can say mm, okay. it explains the spelling, but by the time we're dealing with any accent that we would deal with, let's say, in a play we're dealing with the variation of speakers all over the world. We're not dealing with any historical change. Yes. Um, and that, that uh, generally when we look at regional accents, sometimes we have splits in a lexical set because of these historical differences. Yes, they've persisted. And, the split. And I, I suspect that there aren't many uh, accents of English where no and stone are still uh, separate from uh, one another. Yeah, I honestly can't think of one. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I I can't think of it. Perhaps yes. one of our listeners will. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are there are splits within the the goat lexical set that we will talk about, but yeah. they they're they're further splits 
uh, more recent splits rather than historical splits, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Um, so let's look at the symbol, the the actual letter shape. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're going to talk to us about Phoenicians and Greeks and yeah, people like that. I enjoy looking that sort of stuff up. Uh, essentially, there was a symbol in the Phoenician alphabet, uh, which we could uh, write the name of as apostrophe A-I-N. And if you know in Arabic, Arabic, that's still a letter in Arabic. And uh, let me see if I can do it. Ein. Ein. Uh, the name of it is pronounced Ein. And that beginning sound of Ein uh, is essentially a pharyngeal, a voiced pharyngeal or epiglottic fricative. Uh, that symbol uh, was... It meant, the name meant I, uh, that is the I in your head, the thing you see with. Uh, and pretty early, though, the Greeks took the symbol, which looked kind of like an I. The, the Egyptian hieroglyphic form was a pretty sweet-looking drawing of an I with a little almond shape and a circle inside of it. Uh, but then it moved to being a circle to represent this pharyngeal sound. When the Greeks stole it, they stole it to represent what was essentially two sounds in Greek, a long and a short O. Uh, that is, in phonetic duration, they were long and short. Uh, there can be some confusion because people talk about the short O sound, and we've already talked about that when we talked about lot and cloth. Uh, when you look up on the Internet's short O, you don't get this sound represented. Yes. So when Greeks took it, they eventually they decided there should be two different symbols to represent the long and the short O. Uh, they called them big O and little O, or O-mega and O-micron. And obviously we still use the words mega and micro to describe big and small things. When Latin took the Greek writing system, they just kept the omicron, just the short O, uh, or the small O, which is a circle. And they used it to represent something pretty similar to what we think of as an O sound. English, French, all the Romance languages and all the languages of Europe, essentially, that use a Roman writing system, use this circle to represent O. What I think, I honestly think, and I didn't actually chat with you about this before, so it may be complete BS and you can tell me about it. <laughs> I think that one of the reasons that symbol has been matched to a particularly rounded pronunciation is it looks round. It looks like it the lips. It looks round. It's really easy to say, oh, uh, perhaps you will remember, since you have small children, uh, the cartoon show Ren and Stimpy? Uh, I, I do vaguely remember it, but it, my children are much too uh, young to match. remember to have watched Ren and Stimpy. Uh, there was a fabulous moment in which uh, Ren, the little psychotic chihuahua, uh, is overwhelmed with the need to be good. And he says, I will go do nice things. And in the cartoon, his mouth forms a little O shape, and the word go is represented in it. And it's 
uh, or in the, the caterpillar in the uh, Alice in Wonderland cartoon. Uh, what is the thing the caterpillar says? Who are you? And the little O shape of ooh, it moves out of his mouth like smoke rings. Right. And that's that sort of uh, moon usage, double O, to represent Exactly. Ooh. So I don't know. I think that there's some sort of mapping going on there. So that's an exhaustive and exhausting uh, survey of the history of the symbol. Uh, it ends up okay, being so- a pretty stable symbol for us. Uh, yes, and I think uh, second language learners, uh, English as a foreign language, English as a second language learners, they are likely to not struggle in a big way with making an O sound that we will recognize. They're not likely yeah. to say E for a symbol O. They'll right. make something very close because to the it symbol almost O immediately. corresponds for them with. A, sim- a very similar sound. They may get in trouble when English letter O represents a non-goat sound. Uh, yes. So we get words like hot being pronounced hot, yeah. but t- tends not to go the other way. Yeah. Uh, there was one other thing I wanted to say about the letter O. Oh, yeah. There is another symbol uh, here. I'll prove myself an utter geek. In in leet speak, in online gaming uh, funny writing, O's are often represented as zeros, which you can see on the keyboard are taller and narrower. Uh, And sometimes have a slash through Yes, yes. And so... uh, And and that slash is there to distinguish between zeros and O's. The origin of the symbol for zero... uh, The concept of zero is an Indian concept. They're the ones who invented it, and it was transmitted to the rest of the world, uh, primarily through Arabic, uh, Islamic culture. Uh, That zero, interestingly, sort of represented circularity, completeness, uh, the sort of connectedness of the world, and, uh, and in that sense, the cycle of life. And... And that's a a wonderful connection, nothingness and completeness. Uh, That's a maybe not a very Western concept, Uh, (laughs) but it was distinct. Uh, It was, and the similarity of the symbols uh, is doesn't indicate a similarity of origins. So you can think of zero as the still place of the turning world and O as an I, or, as I already said, as lips. The, the roundness of the face, rather than the circularity of the globe. All right, that was too deep, even for me. <laughs> Let's move forward. So we want to talk mechanics of articulation, uh, uh, and here we're, we're talking about lip rounding as yeah. a, a general concept, um, and... There are versions of this lexical set that are set without lip rounding, but in terms of what the heck is going on inside the mouth when we make an O sound, as represented by the IPA, the lowercase O symbol, um, as a starting point, a leaping off place. So uh, on the, the IPA chart, the O symbol is a mid-close, close mid. back, close-mid, mid-close, close-mid, you're right, close mid. 
uh, rounded back vowel. So um, rounding means bringing the corners of the lips forward. So we get a kind of kiss-like action. And the uh, backing means that the back third of the tongue is rising towards the soft palate. Um, and it's, it's not fully closed, it's only close mid. Um, and this makes a sound, oh, that, that it does have kind of a rich, dark tone to yeah. it. We use metaphors like dark when we talk dark. about, oh. Uh, how would you map the term covered onto that? I've heard that as well to describe this acoustic right. effect. Right. That, uh, that, more open, more fronted sounds tend to have a kind of bright twanginess to them. And uh, from classical singing, there's a, a term of, of, of a covered tone. Uh, with, with the sound further back, it's as if your head is kind of muffling or damping or filtering the sound a little bit. And so that creates kind of a rich, resonant overtone that... Uh, uh, we might think of as being covered, as if there's more flesh between the, the release point of that resonance in your head, covering it up. Um, that, that's what resonates for me. I, I often think of a covered scene, oh, uh, an operatic kind of yeah. oh, as opposed to a belty oh. I mean, one um, way we could think about yeah. this is that there are two main chambers in any configuration of the vocal tract, that there's a sort of front chamber and a back chamber, and... The difference between vowel sounds is often the relationship between how big the front chamber is to how big the back chamber is. And in yes. O, and particularly in U, we have a pretty open front chamber, but a pretty small closed back chamber, because the tongue is further back making that closure. We're, and to a certain degree, there, there is space behind the closure, yeah. right, in your pharynx. And so the, the, the resonance is happening in that chamber behind yeah. that closure rather than happening within the, the oral cavity. Um, so it, uh, that rising of the back of the tongue is creating a sort of speed bump. Mm. And a lot of the buzz, as it were, is happening behind the tongue in the pharyngeal space as opposed to in the oral I wanted to pick up one thing um, about lip rounding, and I know we've talked about this before when talking about goose, that the muscular action of lip rounding is the orbicularis oris muscle that circles the mouth has differential tensing possibilities, that the outside fibers can tense while the inside fibers stay loose, and that tends to squish the lips forward. So Dudley Knight, my colleague, uh, often refers to lip protrusion as lip corner advancement. So it's the corners of your mouth that are being moved forward. Partially be Well, that's not to say that the other parts Absolutely. of the lip aren't also being moved forward, but if you think of the corners coming forward motivating yeah. that... I mean, really, we're talking about easier. the length of the resonating tube, and if the corners are back, that's where you have to start measuring the length of the tube. But if the corners move forward to where the other bits are, then the tube is that long. I, I suppose... It's a, it, it extends yeah. the tube by reaching them forward, doesn't it? And that changes the uh, acoustic characteristics of the space. A longer tube makes a more deeply richer, darker sound as we proceed. So the... Articulatory anatomy of 
o in its pure vowel form. I hate to say pure. I know the, why you feel that way. It's a it's a very judgmental sounding word, uh, but we're maybe we could say a simple o uh, mm. that it's pure in the sense that nothing else happens. Right, sort of simple in a uh, kind of uh, like uh, Amish furniture. <laughs> yes, unornamented. My, my parents' house is filled with Amish furniture. It's quite beautiful. So yes, we've got. The two components are lip corner advancement, is what I'm accustomed to saying, uh, and closing or closing of the tongue towards the soft palate, toward but not fully up, and in a back position. So we've got a mm. ball of tongue rolling up and back and lips going forward, which is one reason why people can feel this either as a back or a front motion. Because the tongue is moving back mm. and the lips are moving front, and that can be sometimes confusing right. for students. I, I think also because our lips have so many nerve endings mm. in them, compared to the back of the tongue, the back of the mouth, that uh, they they are distracting. They draw our attention away from the action of the back of the tongue. So if you're unfamiliar with this idea of backness on an O, uh, you can play around with using your fingers to isolate your lips so that they don't move and then try to say oh without your lips or uh, pulling the corners of your mouth back in that sort of wide mouth frog joke kind of way oh. um, and uh, you get to hear that oh sound happening with the you, back I'm afraid you've stepped into a trap, an unintentional trap that oh, oh. I <laughs> all this morning I was trying to create oh sounds without moving my lip corners forward because it occurs mm. to me that the lip action might not be as important as we traditionally say. Uh, mm. I find... Just, just a little yeah. interjection, right? That on the IPA chart, there is a symbol that represents this O oh, without lip rounding, O, oh, that's called ram's yes. horns. So, right? It's this sort of O oh, that's kind of twisted exactly. in on itself. Exactly, if you broke it in the, at the top and twisted its sides past each other like Samson you would create a ram's horn. Because <laughs> it would take it that would. much strength to break it. So, so yeah, I can start with my lip corners forward and say, oh, 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 oh. And I can make something that sounds pretty close to an oh without the lip corners going forward. So much so that Daniel Jones, in one of his first treaties on phonetics describe something called inner rounding, which when I read it, I mm. thought, I don't think that that's a thing. And clearly he decided so as well, because it doesn't show up anywhere after like the late 18th, 19th century uh, when he wrote it. I mean, really, as we moved into the 20th century, that sort of died off as a phonetic principle. But I know what he means, and I think that I can articulate it in terms of that backing of the tongue. That, uh, and so what I'm going to try to do is take the lips out of it and do, scare quotes, inner rounding. That is to say, make more of the O-ish sound by the shape of the back of my tongue. So I'll start in schwa. Uh, now, 
Eric, you on Skype can see that I'm just leaving my lips completely relaxed. Lips. For our audience at home, (laughs) he has not moved his lips at all. Uh, That was appropriately breathless. Uh, So, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is even though we and all the phoneticians in the world describe this as a rounded sound, it may be that the tongue position does more to create that sound than the lip position. I agree. I agree. Uh, that the, the, the lip is sort of an enhancement to the bulk of the work that is done by the action of the tongue. Um, and as we look at different variations of, of the, the O lexical set, uh, we'll talk about more or less lip rounding yeah. in different contexts. So that, that'll be fun to talk about, <laughs> um, in our kind of nerdish fun way. Um, the, Second element of a diphthong, typically uh, O gets paired with diphthongs like ow um, because they both head towards the same second element, which is the close, close, mid, uh, back, rounded vowel represented by the the symbol upsilon, which is sort of a turned omega. So it's close in the same way that O is. Uh, it's it's also slightly more towards the center line of the chart. So mm-hmm. more what we also might say is more. Yes, last. exactly. So they are awfully close on the chart, aren't they? Uh, they are similar to the way I was close to a when we had the diphthong a in face. It's just a short journey. Yeah. Uh, oh. And as I alluded to last time in face, it may be that that is a journey of laxing. Uh, even if it's not a big journey in terms of mouth position, it's a significant journey in terms of effort, perhaps. But yes, we are moving in the traditional diphthong O from the Omicron circle O to the Upsilon foot sound oh 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 because it's the tail of a diphthong it's naturally going to be relaxing it's going to be harder to perceive exactly where it is but its position that second second element's position will have a strong influence on the realization of that that sound which we will get into momentarily so have we covered the articulatory mechanics of O. I think we have. So, we need to uh, talk about specific variations okay. and how that's re- those are realized and perhaps the phonetic symbols that would be associated with them. Um, and uh, since we... Well, I... I'm going to, our little outline suggests that we go to the UK first, but since we're both yeah. North Americans, I say we start with I believe us that that is first. a righteous choice. So, um, we've been talking about this idea of the pure O, the simple O, and its relationship to this diphthong heading towards Upsilon O. Um, typically, when we see uh, most North American uh, accents transcribed, we're seeing 
a transcription of O, um, something around that realm. So there's rounding on the O, we're starting fairly close, and there's a diphthong quality. That's not to say that there aren't North American varieties that have monothongal pure O, yeah. um, but generally when we think North America, we do tend to think O with some rounding, some lip corner advancement. But how rounded is yeah. it? Um, one of the things that strikes me about lip rounding as it relates to vowels is that the degree to which a vowel is rounded affects the consonant that precedes it. So if I was to say, go home, and I really wanted to make sure that those diphthongs had an element of rounding to them at the beginning, I would have to make sure to round the g sound at the beginning of go and the h sound at the beginning of home. So if my lips aren't rounded on g to begin, go home, what I get is sort of a go home. Uh, I'm rounding into mm -hmm. the second element of the diphthong, starting from a place of, of lip relaxation. And so to my ear, those diphthongs are starting in a less rounded place, uh, closer to perhaps what I think of as the IPA uh, hut mm -hmm. vowel, go, go home, um, so that that lip rounding is, is becoming more. And perhaps that's a late 20th century change to general expectations of American sounds, less rounding. I, what do I you think, think about that, that Phil? My first thought was, I think you're absolutely right, and it's uh, a change motivated by context, as we've spoken of before, mm. that it's the articulatory action that creates that rounding into the preceding. It's a pre-articulation of O. And you... Yes, an anticipation. Yeah, you could write it phonetically. You could put a little labialization mark on your G every time you move into a rounded vowel. Uh, and generally speaking, we don't, for the reasons that we mentioned last time, actually, that we don't want to go overboard in transcribing every single thing that occurs when we can logically expect that it's going to occur anyway. So we, we would expect uh, a consonant before a rounded vowel to have a rounded element and to it. it's certainly true that some of my students are doing less of that activity. They're doing less pre-rounding. Uh, I don't specifically teach it. That is to say, I'm not saying make sure that you do a little rounding on your G before you get to O, uh, because I, I find that by upping the expectation for articulatory engagement, which is something that everybody does on a sort of global and semi-conscious scale, that those things get taken care of. Uh, and the way that, uh, that Dudley and I, for example, deal with this notion is in terms of vowel differentiation. Uh, one of the virtues of the speech method that we espouse, uh, that is to say, we claim it as a virtue, we want people to do it, <laughs> not that it's particularly virtuous for us to have said to do that. Uh, what we're asking for is enough activity in the vowel to make it distinct from another vowel. And so mm. uh, 
rather than being specific about how that happens, we're saying, up the activity. And I think that, that activity naturally happens. Uh, or do you find that you're that by asking students to attend to this pre-rounding, that they actually improve their targeting of the phoneme O? Well, I find that when I'm teaching an accent where uh, I need a pure O, um, people who have not done this before don't anticipate the rounding. And so that I'm asking them to say goat, and them getting goat. And so I say, to get the pure O, you can do the pure O on its own, but if you don't anticipate it, you will, you will end up sliding into it. So um, I have to teach to say goat if I want to get them I that rounded. I think that's a really good um, insight, and it's officially stolen now. I'm going to start doing it. You're welcome. <laughs> Listeners, you too may steal. Uh, the, uh, uh, the tendency for a, a less rounded O, O, um, is, is enough that I think that many people who perhaps have, you know, used IPA for a long time, they think of their own diphthong, O, as starting on a quite rounded O. But I would certainly admit that if I compare my O diphthong to the O that I use when I speak French, for instance, when I say haute, the O I use in French is more rounded, it's closer. Um, so in terms of that uh, non-existent great IPA in the sky, uh, I'm, I, I'm trying to be aware of the fact that there are versions of O that are more acutely rounded and uh, more close than the version of O that we use yeah. in North America. And I'm not really saying that it, it should be more rounded. It, I'm just saying that, uh, that there are versions of O that could be more rounded, that could be uh, more um, I, I totally agree, and I think that sometimes uh, we lose our way when we cut corners in our precision of description. And so American accents are described as having a diphthong O with a fully rounded O first element. And that becomes wishful thinking or subtle teaching, <laughs> targeting to say, no, you should do this O. But I think if you did a survey of American speakers outside of the upper Midwest, which we'll get to later, uh, you would find mm. very little rounding. Uh, the, it wouldn't sound... At least on the, in exactly. the initial element. It wouldn't sound like an RP speaker. There are... Uh, every happy family is alike. Every unhappy family is different in its own way. Uh, every unrounded O is different in its own way. Uh, so I'll, I'll think of a... So the sentence is, no, don't go. If I say, no, don't go, no, don't go, no, don't go, I'm not rounding those very much at all, but they're distinct, I think. I think you can hear the accent difference in them. And I'm trying not to make it about the second element. I thought that right. it, I might take this moment to quote Hans Kurath, or Kurat, or I have no idea how he pronounces, pronounced his name. Kurath. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Uh, <laughs> K-U-R-A-T-H, yes, exactly. yes. And this is uh, from his book, 
uh, American pronunciation, which was published in 1928, uh, that I was looking at because he was laying out these dialect areas in the United States. So he has a Western, an Eastern, and a Southern variety here. So I'll just quote directly. In Western, the vowel sounds in lay, grave, shade, rate, which is face, and low, grove, mode, rote, which are clearly diphthongal in British English, are but slightly so in Western American English, especially before voiceless stops, and the O is not fronted as in British English. So we don't get O, we get O. And what he's saying is in the West we say, oh no, and we do not very much diphthong. No, I, I can buy that. Uh, he points out that it's especially so before voiceless stops. So, hope and ho would be different. That makes sense, but that's really a matter of length, isn't it? We've already talked about how the consonant context changes the length, and if things... Uh, and I think we also mentioned a little bit in, yeah, I, in our face conversation that, that when it's followed by a, a stop plosive, we're more likely to have a very brief and so less opportunity for movement yeah. of the articulators. All right, Eastern, uh, a more diphthongal pronunciation of face and goat, much as in British English, but with less fronting of O, uh, less fronting. So it's more diphthongal in the East, O, O, uh, but not so much as O. This feature is also found in the extreme East of North Carolina and Virginia. And I can certainly hear that still in North Carolina, oh no. Oh no, Exactly, go, which yeah. maps almost completely onto UK things, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, then he doesn't pick any specific thing about a southern O, which is so interesting to me because he, of course, is uh, one of the great early writers about southern accents, and I, uh, it may be that it's just too close to him. Uh, his southern accent description is incredibly detailed, <laughs> unlike his other two accents. Uh, there's another thing that he brings up here that I think is useful to pay attention to. And that is, pardon me, I'm trying to find it. There we go. The unstressed vowel, this is a quote from his sort of description of the general American accent, even though he doesn't use that term. The unstressed vowel in borrow, tomorrow, follow, and negro, this is 1928, etc., is usually much more shortened and relaxed, also often reduced to an obscure vowel in the natural conversation of the cultured classes. The obscure vowel in, is universal in popular speech. So what he's saying is that people, he's claiming this to be fairly universal in American speech, borrow, tomorrow, follow, and negro. So... That relaxation, I think, is no longer universal, but certainly in the 20s in the mm -hmm. United States, he was observing it as a unique American feature. Well, not unique, of course, because it's in Irish English as well. Yes. So we're getting words like exactly. fella or window. fellow, winda, tomato. And so that's certainly a, a realization of goat, but you might have to think of it as a special class. Uh, it's unstressed goat, unstressed yes. final goat. So it's merging yeah. with schwa in sort of the exactly. comma lexical set. So that, uh, let's talk about a little bit uh, other things about variety of American O, because I think the other one is this pure vowel or this monophongal O, uh, which, of course, I think is 
pretty commonly understood as being a Minnesota sound. Yes, uh, reaching up into places like uh, North yeah. and South Dakota, um, and uh, of course crossing the border into Central Canada. Uh, in rural parts of Central Canada, we get quite a quite a lot of oh oh no, you know don't yeah. don't go away. Uh, that very closed door. And I suppose we could say that in both Canada and in Minnesota, the O is variably monothongal or diphthongal, sort of depending on urban-rural divisions. It's, uh, it's one of those sounds that's detectable enough that people might try and fix it if they're going to run for state senate or something. I suppose no. You wouldn't. Yes. You'd want to keep it if you were running for state senate to show that you were of the people. Yes, um, and it would be interesting to take a look at uh, Michelle Bachman. Uh, certainly, it would be interesting to compare Michelle Bachman to Al Franken uh, in terms because they're they're both Minnesotans, uh, but they have very different cultural connections. And so very different realizations of mm. O. Or I'm guessing they have very different realizations yes. of O. Uh, I'd have to listen to a sample. But Al Franken started out being a comic yeah. and, you know, looking for an internet, a, a national, if not international audience. Yeah. And I think it's a different path. So, so yeah, that's what I'm saying. All, all of these things are variable in terms of geography, but they're also variable in terms of idiosyncrasy and aspiration, things we might call class and culture. So we've got those O's. We've got a very sort of fronted and unrounded version in California, oh no, uh, almost front enough to be like eh, oh no. And in that case, it's almost monophongal as well because the second element is not particularly rounded. Oh no. Oh, no. No, no, no. I can totally see that uh, as, a, as another version of monophongal O, but I don't think it's often thought of that way. Uh, perhaps because it's so unrounded as to be unlike O in terms of its phonetic description. Yes. So, Phil, if you're, if you're doing that unrounded version, are you transcribing it with uh, ram's horn? as the starting place or uh, uh yeah or what what so, are you using? uh if somebody is saying oh no i might transcribe it as a reversed lowercase e that is higher than schwa hmm. uh no right if i think it's being uh, really fronted uh, i might put a plus sign underneath it to say it's closer to a a no so that slashed o kind of place uh, uh, yeah, depending if it's rounded. No, uh. but yeah, there are rounded versions of it too, and I'd say that probably uh, my uh, no. o o, and maybe it's because I'm from Iowa originally, and so I get a little bit of extra rounding in there. But I think I'm starting from a barred mm. o. It's quite central in its right. beginning point, but it stays rounded pretty much throughout. Uh, oh no! Oh, and no. what do we use for unrounded? Upsilon. There is no symbol for unrounded. Yeah, there was a great one. There was the the but symbol. Mm. Uh, but it was a bad example because it was a very round-shaped symbol. Mm. And 
Uh, I believe it was proposed as the unrounded form of upsilon. Upsilon, I guess. <laughs> but I, uh, it didn't catch on. And so I use a less rounded symbol underneath it, a, an open or a half ring pointed backwards. The open bit is pointed backwards. Some people call that the letter C. It is like the letter C. I'd say it resembles the letter yeah. C. <laughs> but uh, uh, you get the idea, I think, quickly with the yeah. letter C. Um, I, 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 too, would have to go with that, because what, what else have we got? We don't have much. I have another suggestion. Mm -hmm. We could use the unrounded close-back symbol, which is like a double U, with a mid-centralization symbol on it, which is an X over the top, right. which says it's ooh, relaxed, ooh, ooh, which would get us into the same right. place. Yes, I call that the double du. Oh, that's good. Double du. So, <laughs> U doubled up. Um, so, or some so, people will call it a turned M. Uh, I want to get back to other possible variations in the United States. We do have a centralized version in Pittsburgh. Oh, no. Oh, no. Which is similar to the Californian version. And, and I, I think in Cincinnati, too. Yes? Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, from Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh. That, make, that maps onto the lowered dress that they have in Cincinnati. <laughs> I had a nice meal at the lowered dress in Cincinnati. Uh but it may be also a, a youth distinction as well, uh, because I really do find that this sort of what we could call the Valley Girl O seems to, amongst the young, more ubiquitous. Mm. But definitely, actually, I had an experience with this O sound. Uh, basically, in Texas, in Houston, where I'm working on a Horton Foot play, there's Oh No. There's not really a fronting and an unrounding. There's an unrounding. Oh, no. But not so much. But the actress playing Jessie May, I, I, she certainly went to school in North Carolina. She was doing these, oh, no. Right. And it was just glorious. It just gave her the perfect little Betty Boop curlicue. Right. Which, even though the sound was more appropriate to Eastern Virginia and North Carolina... I, I I wanted her to keep it. Right. I mean, we think of, uh, you know, Foklahoma, uh, as in <laughs> I can't say no. Uh, there's a yeah. tradition of that O, oh, in particularly in the female uh, Broadway yeah. tradition of Southern accents. Uh, so you could certainly see it as possible, but more importantly, it was artistically delightful. And so... <laughs> Uh, we went for it. Right. That's uh, variability is our friend. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we go through the rest of the South, we get oh oh. I, I feel a kind of uh, centralization there, maybe. Yeah. But also, what dominates particularly in this sound is tongue root retraction, oh, yeah. because it's part part of the uh, oral posture of the accent. Oh no. Oh no. Don't go. Don't go. It's sort of Don't. slightly swallowed in its in its sound. Don't go. 
Yeah. Um, Have we covered America? Have I, we covered Canada? I, yeah, I mean, in Canada, we tend to get oh no and oh no. Um, and of course, in French Canada, we oh no, very rounded oh. Uh, and nasalized. Uh, well, I mean, if it's in a nasal context, you know. You, uh, <laughs> that's. I was just noticing what you did, and that's why it was uh, But uh, in um, in Atlantic Canada, we're more likely to get sort of, oh, oh no, that kind of flattening. Oh, interesting. Oh. Um, so, Which seems to map onto London. But that's not its source. No, it would be more likely to map to Scottish or Irish or yeah. West Country. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there, Atlantic Canada, there's a lot of variability, so it's hard to say uh, a, a definitive thing for O. Um, definitely some communities will definitely have a pure O kind of sound. Um, okay, so let's leave North America and let's head to the UK. So we start with, you know, the high-status old-fashioned RP, we have uh, sort of a transition from Victorian O into what I think of as sort of 1920s, extremely fronted, oh no, that kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the the sweet young things of the, the 1920s. Um, the gals, you know, come gals. Um, oh, no. And oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, very fronted. And uh, I guess it's an Edwardian kind of place of, of that yes. very fronted I'm, I'm thinking now because it seems to be poaching on the territory of face there. That must mean that face moves away. No, not the face. <laughs> no, face. I suppose face raises in in that context. So, yeah, there's an interesting thing in the history of the development of RP from oh no to oh no. And then as we move into what we might call the estuary period, I'm saving uh, multicultural London English uh, for later, we get the influence of Cockney, which is oh no, yeah, is open, still unrounded in the first element. Yeah, I, I feel like we skipped over the sort of ah. central part of the 20th century where O oh starts with something that they map onto schwa. Yes, and, indeed. And um, O, oh, uh, to me, that's kind of the bulk of the 20th century of what we think of as sort of standard British is uh, that this uh, southern English kind of pronunciation of O. Well, we can see that Hans Kurath was describing British English as a fronted first element. Mm. Oh, no. Oh, no. But front um, from O. Like, doesn't, does yes, it get to yes. all the way to, f- to... Does it get past a central vowel to, to be a front vowel? It certainly retreats from that 20, 1920s position to a more central position. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, uh, when I'm, I'm going over symbols with my, um, my students talking about schwa is that for the most part, schwa is used in unstressed syllables. And it, when we encounter O in the UK and we have to use the, the initial element of the diphthong, we are using schwa traditionally to represent that initial part. And they all go, I thought schwa was only in unstressed syllables. And so then I have to go, 
well, it is now, most of the time, and when the way you speak, yes, it is mostly. Um, but that, uh, what the symbol that looks like the letter three, the number three, uh, mm-hmm. o, it is perhaps just a little bit more open. But traditionally, in terms of people writing this O diphthong, they're going to write it with a schwa. And uh, that that makes a little mental explosion for many of my students. And I think that's one reason why students, in aiming for it, tend to overshoot it Mm. and do air now. They they can't look into the void of the (laughs) schwa. But I do find it's often very useful to say, all right, we're taking all the O's out of this text and replacing them with schwa. Oh, no, Tani, don't gather. And then they're aiming into that position, and they can simply add the rounded element. Right. Uh, so the difference is between uh, no, and oh, no. It, somehow it lets them loose from overworking that first element. Mm-hmm. I think there was an interesting uh, little digression here. Uh, a, a, po- a, blo- a blog post by John Wells about central vowels, how generally he doesn't find himself using many symbols from the central area of the chart because they tend to all map onto schwa, uh, more or less, that he might denote a very small differentiation. The phonemic identity of schwa is strong. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it's sort of the black hole of the vowel chart. It's yeah. strong gravitational pull. Um, and uh, often when we think of shades of gray, that, that uh, well, it's gray. Um, and that, that does, schwa, schwa does sort of feel like the gray center of the vowel chart, that we have uh, very saturated colors of vowels around the outside, but the center of the vowel chart is, is v- very murky gray. Well, they, I don't remember where this phrase comes from, but all cats are gray in the dark. Mm. That Because there's not enough light, we can't make distinctions. And in unstressed syllables, there's not enough attentional light, and so we can't distinguish the colors. It must be gray. Yes. I'm not saying that realizationally they're all exactly the same, but in terms of our perceptions, it's a schwa. Yes, especially considering the timing of, of reduced yeah. vowels. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, keep moving here. We've got yes. We've... So we've got oh no, which is, I think Daniel Jones as early as the twenties, uh, you know, the same dates as Kurath, uh, in his pronouncing dictionary, he puts a chart showing O, the position of O, and he puts a circle for O, so he's representing it somewhat phonemically, and he puts it on the cardinal vowel position. He invented the cardinal vowels, so he can do that. (laughs) But then he puts a red mark with the same symbol O drifted towards the middle. Not fully into schwa, but drifted towards the middle, thereby acknowledging that the realization of O for him was more central. Yeah. But it wasn't until 1967, I think that's right, uh, that uh, Gimson, who really took over from Jones, uh, used the schwa upsilon diphthong to describe O. Mm. Uh, people were having a hard time letting go of the notion of O as the circle symbol because they were having a hard time acknowledging the pronunciation was changing. Uh, 
I think the same thing is sort of happening in the United States because we still tend to use that O diphthong to transcribe what we're doing, even if that's not really what we're doing. Yes. So there's another, let's say that in the middle part of the 20th century, we had Oh No, Tony, which is Schwa Upsilon. We also had Oh No, Tony. Uh, uh, I'd say that we could even say that that's close to script A, Palm, and Upsilon. Oh, uh, it's more central than that. I suppose you could say it's turned V, uh, hut symbol, right. oh no. And I can't remember how Wells transcribes it. when He has a, an article on tra- transcribing Cockney and Estuary, and I can't remember quite how he transcribes it. But that Cockney version, oh no, melds a little bit with the RP version of oh no, and you get oh, oh, which I suppose you could transcribe as a turned script A, mm-hmm. the O sound, um, O. Oh. And I suppose that takes us to goat allophony. Do you want to take a little journey there? So the the split here is that the, in certain contexts we get different versions, and the, the really big difference is when the what we expect to be uh, the goat lexical set is followed by an L sound. So if we yeah. compare goat to goal, um, if they were the same, we'd get goat and goal. But typically, what we're getting is goat and goal. And this is a, a change that is evolving. Um, John Wells had a recent blog post where he found an example in the wedding vows yeah. of. Uh, uh, Prince, Prince, Harry. Prince Harry, and so he, uh, to have and to hold, uh, he said... Whereas the archbishop said, to have and to hold, and he repeated, to have and to hold. So, uh, yeah. so there's a, a backing compared to the O, uh, and a rounding before the L. And this uh, comes to RP, if Harry indeed speaks uh, RP, since he is headed to be the head of the social structure as as Yeah, one of the defined. commenters said uh, he defines RP, so he speaks RP. Whatever he speaks is RP. Uh, what is that platonic paradox about gods being good because they're good or because good pre-exists before them? It's the same thing. He is royal, and therefore everything he speaks is the model accent. I don't believe that, but it's an interesting way of looking at it. He, he's certainly perceived to be at the top of the pyramid, um, but uh, um, whether or not that is perceived as being the highest status form of the accent anymore, um, yeah. if people pe- speak a more posh than the king... Um, we can say that he sets the goals. The goals. <laughs> In his role as uh, prince. There's an interesting thing that Wells points out, by the way, with this gotolophony is that it's sensitive to syllable boundaries. Mm. So you might say goal, but goli, mm. because go is the first syllable. It isn't followed by an L in the first syllable. The second syllable begins with an L, so it's go, li, goal. Right. And so we should expect, if we hear somebody talking in this accent, RP, estuary, to be saying... And then the goalie hit a goal. I guess goalies don't hit goals. He defended the goal. Yes. 
So I don't have an example of that, but I, I expect it to occur. Right. Um, the uh, uh, His role as goalie um, might... Yes, exactly. That's what we should expect. Um, and when we think, uh, when I when I think about this, I th- I think of the connection to the rounding, the tendency to round the velarized L. So the when we think of uh, working class London, L that kind of rounded, n- no action of the front of the tongue. We already did this in our laterals episode. So if you want to s- listen to our episode on laterals, episode twenty six. Uh, we talk about final L going to an O or O-like sound. Yeah. Uh, well, um, if uh, we're saying we're like go and we're rounding that L, we're going to anticipate that rounded L. So go, we're going to bring that rounding from the L into the vowel. And so we're, we're, we're preloading the, the rounding that's expected for the L into the vowel. So... For me, that's my expectation of that the, that the L two is quite rounded. Go. Yeah, the articulatory pose of L, postvocalic L, and of O, and of O are very similar. The back of the tongue is doing a similar thing, so we can expect uh, it to have L to have gravitational effects on vowels, which we talked about, I think, when we talked about L. Hmm. All right, there's another step here in this. Basically, we've been talking about London. Uh, there's another step in the journey, which is the most modern London accent, which is multicultural London English, or MLE. We talked about that when we talked about face, uh, shifting back towards A. Uh, the, a similar shift is true in goat, in that we're moving towards a more monothongal goat. So let me see if I can do the journey here. Victorian, oh no, those are goats. Uh, no, oh, oh no, oh no, those no. are goats. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I didn't target it very well. I switched to the 20th century. Oh, oh no, those are goats. Then the beginning of the 20th century, oh no, those are goats. And then 20s to... 90s, uh, oh no, those are goats. Then the influence of Cockney, oh no, those are goats, brings estuary into, oh no, those are goats. I suppose I have to say, oh no, those are goals, to make a difference between goats and goals. And then in multicultural London English, oh no, those are goats. Oh no, those are goats. Yeah, let me get that, oh, pure oh. Okay, it's so quite a journey, isn't it? It really is. What's so interesting to me, and what must really be in the minds of speech teachers in the UK, is in terms of face, in terms of goat, in terms of uh, goose, there are major changes underway in the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century. That accent is bouncing all over the place. Yes. And... Uh, that's good. It's good to be aware of that and not to merely be the keepers of the creed, mm-hmm. uh, but to be describers of what's actual in, in people's speech. Shall we leave London and go out to the rest of uh, the UK and other English-speaking countries? So yes. 
the main difference I would say is a difference between monophthongal and diphthongal realizations. Uh, there's also a difference between rounding and unrounding. But it seems to me that if you start to go north a bit from London, you might start to encounter monophthongal O. Mm -hmm. Those are goats. Goats. What you might get in longer versions is O, goats, goats. Uh, you, you can start to get, as we got with Fis, a sort of new diphthong which has more of a schwa at beginning, goats. No, I guess that's a, more of a schwa ending. Goat. Goat. Goat, yeah. But it, that's really a feature of lengthening that monophthongal O. That goes into but we Ireland. Could, sorry, Phil, to interject, yeah. interject, but we could have more of a, an O beginning opening to more open O. Goats. Goats. Yeah, uh, yeah. Which we get in places like the parts of the Caribbean, for instance. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so we could either talk about the people's accents that colonized those places, or probably more likely a sort of lengthening tendency that led to those shifts. So then if we go into Ireland and Scotland, we get goat, pure monophthongal goat, although I suppose in Northern Ireland you mo you're more likely to get more goat uh, because there's a more English influence there. Uh, I'd also say that goat, goat, in Scotland you're more likely to get uh, an O realization, an open O realization. Goat. 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 Uh, we also have an interesting thing where mouth has shifted to oo, hoose, hoose. Who's goat? And I'm wondering if that there's a general lip forward pose going on in Scottish speech. There's more lip rounding, more activity there. So what I'm trying to distinguish here is in goat, in Scottish goat, is there more openness in the tongue, but still as much lip corner advancement as there is in Irish? That's just an intuition. I don't think I have any evidence for that. I would be inclined to think there's at least as much lip rounding. Oh. Oh. So, can we go to Australia? Sure. So, the, <laughs> the thing that's really relevant about our Antipodean friends is the, uh, the advancement of the second element. Yeah. Right? Uh, the second element of the diphthong being, from an American perspective, oh. Oh, well, or RP, oh. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. So it's heading to an U sort of sound, oh, oh. Yeah, exactly. And I would say, as you just did, it's unrounded. And so it might be appropriate to use a barred I to represent that sound. Barred I being central, close, unrounded. Yeah, I think that, you know, there'll be shades that the more extreme I is going to be the barred I and the less extreme O is going to have some rounding. Yeah. And then there'll be more traditional, more like RP Australian accents, sort of the ABC Australian Broadcasting Corporation traditional style, more of an O. 
so that uh, there's less of that sort of distinctive Australian flavor of the fronting of that second element. And in fact, I think that we could probably find that I know in London as well, sort of home counties. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I feel like maybe that's an independent development. I don't think that the fronted, unrounded second element of goat went on the ship's to Australia. Mm. But, boy, that would take quite a bit of research to figure that out. So I feel confident in guessing wildly that that's true, since I don't think anybody's going to contradict me. Uh, but it does seem like maybe it's an echo or a separate development. Because if I, hear, I, I heard somebody on a television show the other day saying, I know, and... I had to listen for quite a while to hear the other aspects of the accent, to hear if she was Australian or from the London area. Right. Should we travel just briefly to other countries? Sure. Um, any, any examples that leap to mind from Europe, Phil? Well, certainly I think that we can make the general statement that most languages that have an O phoneme have a pure vowel, which is yes. rounded. Uh, uh, there, there's a wonderful uh, animated show called Creature, Creature Comforts, which is claymation. Uh, Made in Toronto. Uh, terrific. So the One of my students is the panda bear. I'm going to have to listen again for just that. The, the, there's a, a lion uh, who's from Brazil, and his, all of his O's are really rounded. And you can see it in the claymation, of course. That style has really strong lip rounding. Uh, so he says, show me a hot country, I'll go. And his lips just linger out there for a while. Uh, there's, I, I'm searching now for the, uh, the Wikipedia page on the O, pure vowel O phoneme, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to have to search. So why don't you vamp while I search? Um, well, uh, one one example of a slightly more open sound, uh, Japanese always leaps to my mind um, that uh, O in Japanese, uh, uh, typically the each of the um, uh, hiragana and katakana are uh, written out essentially with the same initial consonant, and then the five vowels, a, i, u, e, o. And that last o, typically romanized with the letter o, uh, is really an o sound. So uh, I would transcribe that in IPA as using the open o symbol. So um, if they say domo, they're going to say o. Yes, domo arigato. It's o, rat, not domo arigato. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm going to repeat what I think is a false story that that was actually swiped from Portuguese, uh, that arigato was obligado. Have you heard that story before? Uh, I have not heard that before, but it does not surprise me. Uh, the Japanese culture is full of uh, drawing stuff in, almost like English. The only we thing are the Borg. <laughs> we will be assimilated. Uh, the only thing that I, seems a little odd is to go from obligado to arigato, but that sort of thing happens. Yes, so especially I find with it, L and R in Japanese. 
Ah, yes. But I'm thinking about the the vowel preceding that. The oligato, oligato. Oh, so you're saying that the l, the phoneme, the consonant phoneme has shifted the vowel phoneme. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So I'm taking a look at the page on the o sound, the uh, close mid back vowel on Wikipedia. And uh, it's pretty straightforward. Egyptian, Bulgarian, Catalan, Faroese, French, German, Hungarian, all of these languages seem to have a pure vowel, which is an O, which is either long or short, but not much changed in terms of its realization. That is within the error bars of Wikipedia. Uh, There may be quite different uh, sounds. In Cantonese, we're given a diphthong, but with an oo ending, o, o, uh, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, in English, however, this is the thing that really caught my eye, is that for, the, for this sound, for this symbol, o, English is given three entries, Australian and New Zealand, in which the sample word is caught. C-A-U-G-H-T. Exactly. So our cool team, caught. Uh, Which does make sense. There is a pretty strong lip rounding and and a high tongue position in that phoneme, the thought phoneme, realized as O. Uh, So I do buy that. The other one is North Central American, which we've already talked about, which is sort of Vargo, O, Rho. And then under notes, it says, usually diphthongized to O, which we've already discussed. Uh, So O is included on the list of, uh, English is included on the list of of languages that uses O, but in a slightly peculiar way. That's because they're dealing with this monothongal O, not with the diphthong O, which is what's represented by the goat lexical set. Yes, uh, I find that a little bit disturbing. I think that anybody trying to figure this out from Wikipedia would be in deep trouble. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they, they are pointing to North Central American English, which there's a link to, and it, uh, you know, widely spoken upper Midwest parts of Canada, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So it's uh, it, it's not the parts they're pointing to aren't highly populated, so we don't think of it as a dominant demographic of the United States, but there's a fair amount of geographical area that's covered by those states. Um, Is that, is that, am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I think, I think that's so that there are, there are, there are people who use the pure vowel O in American speech uh, it seems to punch above its weight in that uh, people notice it. Uh, mm. It's culturally predominant uh, in terms of movies like Fargo. It's a cool-sounding, weird way people talk. So it's distinctive and people think about it a lot. But So we're, we're, we're sort of recognizing the Scandinavian and German roots yeah. of that, exactly. that demographic area. I have a small side note on the 
Scandinavian roots. There is definitely an O in Swedish, uh, but it's represented by an A with a circle on the top. Mm. Uh, in fact, here on the page, the word given is Oka, uh, which is an A with a circle over it. Uh, theater people will run into this in Per Gint. His mother is A with a circle over it, S. E, I think. And that's pronounced Osa, but most people pronounce it Asa. Uh, it's sometimes transcribed as a double A, but it still represents a rounded O sound. Hmm. All right. Have we run aground? Have we said our I think, say? I think we have. So, so um, we should wrap this up with... Uh, our usual appeal that if people want to reach us, glossonomia at gmail.com. And that uh, our next ball of wax that we're going to try to spread thin <laughs> will be the uh, <clears throat> the sound of pirates. Uh, you're right there, Eric. Um, we so, might have to chop it into a few gobbets. I think we might. Yeah. And... We, we, we have yet to kind of figure out what those scobbits might be, but uh, I think there, there will be many an episode on our, our radar for the coming weeks. Since we haven't done a consonant in a couple of weeks, we'll probably start with the idea of consonantal R uh, as a starting place, and from there we can dive into the waters of R as it relates to vowels. Um, so, until next time, Phil, adios. Adios. Dios. <laughs> okay, take care, everybody. We'll see you next time.